mixed emotions Do you know I'm not immune to try? Since I'm bringing all my heart Reaching out, reaching out Welcome to episode 9 of the Happiness Share podcast. We are a group of STG advocates from the YMCA giving a young person's perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, Mark and I interview Maya, one of our participants, about direct provision, what it is, the problems surrounding it, and how direct provision has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy this informative and thought-provoking interview. Without further ado, enjoy the Happiness Chair. Hello everyone, how are we keeping today? Not too bad now. Yeah, I'm pretty good today. Fantastic. We'll begin this week as we always do with our check-in. So everyone, take a deep breath for yourselves. How are you feeling in this moment? Hi guys, uh, I'm Mark. Um, today I'm a bit tired now. It's been a bit of a long day and the weekend was a bit long, but um, I'm still in uh, a good mood. Uh, I'm looking forward to this podcast now and I hope that it'll be good. Fantastic, Mark. Mine? So um, it's Maya. Um, in terms of how I'm doing, I'm doing fairly okay. Yeah, it's miserable outside, but I got some emails done. So, you know, I was somewhat productive today um, and that makes me happy. So there we are. Nice. Happy days. Hello, I'm John. I'm feeling quite good today, actually. Um tired because uh, I'm just back from work and also I work outside so I spent the entire day sitting or standing really more so in the lashing rain um, which thank god I have good rain clothes so it's actually quite enjoyable when you have proper gear on so yeah today was not an all that bad day altogether this week before we get to our main topic which we're going to be actually doing an interview with one of our contributors Maya well, the first thing I think we must speak about is the coronavirus. This week we have had 183,000 new coronavirus cases globally. And that is in a single day. So that happened this week. And that is kind of terrifying because we believed that the coronavirus was ebbing, or many people did anyway. Um, but it seems as if it still has a huge new strength. So what do we think around this? It's. I do think it was probably expected to a certain extent because although in Ireland we probably have got past our peak in a lot of countries they were behind us their peak might only be coming the last couple of weeks in the last week or two even so I don't think it's too much of a surprise but at the same time it's important that we remain cautious even in Ireland here all our cases are low that a second wave could very easily come back mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think Mark's um dead right there because uh, especially with the developing countries that were hit, kind of after, kind of you know um the European mm. ones in America were hit, um and their infrastructure and their systems are very different, and they often don't have, you know, the same capabilities to just halt everything, as we did essentially. So yes. their kind of mitigation strategies are going to be a bit more drawn out. And I think they're going to struggle a little bit more. Mm. And um, I imagine, you know, whereas we, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel almost. Um, it's going to be a little bit longer for them, I think. So probably that's probably why. That is a very good point. 
And I also do think that many countries in which it's hitting now um, don't have much trust in their governments, whereas Ireland does have quite a bit of trust in its government. Regardless of whether you like the government or not, around the coronavirus, there has shown to be a lot of trust in it. And that has meant that people have bought into the restrictions very well. Whereas it's just that in areas that it's, it's more overt, um, you'll have much trust, less trust in governments, and that'll mean that people won't follow the restrictions, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I I really hope, I really really hope that it doesn't impact the countries too much, especially ones which have a certain amount of kind of you know, difficulties with the government kind of relations and, you know, with civil unrest, I really hope that it doesn't. Yes. Um, that's probably quite a naive hope, but um, I really hope it doesn't because um, it would, I imagine the impacts of COVID are going to be long lasting anyway, but I really hope mm. we don't see kind of displacement around it or, you know, kind of more strenuous kind of, outputs from an already tense situation. Yes. This week, as it has been World Refugee Day, we've decided to do a special interview with one of our participants, Maya. Maya is going to speak to us about direct provision. So Maya, would you like to introduce yourself before we begin? Tell our listeners a bit more about yourself that they may not know. Yeah, so um, my name's Maya, Maya Kelly. Um, I am a 21-year-old student of international development in UCC hopefully going into my third year if 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 everything goes well <laughs> um and yeah so i um i've been kind of working in kind of an area um i work a lot with people who are living in direct provision um or people who are just out of it um but i've been working in that kind of area since i was about 16, I think, as a volunteer with um, a local um, solidarity kind of group. And I um, I actually first found out like what a, who a refugee was through the YMCA. And I just, mm. I really, really love my community. And I wanted to make sure everyone um, loved it as much as I did, I suppose. And then when I joined um, UCC, there was a group there called STAR, which is now Falcher Refugees. And I was the chairperson of that last year. I'm there now, they're ex officio, which translates to old person who won't go away. But now I am also involved in, <laughs> <laughs> in University of Sanctuary um, and the Court Migrant Center. So basically, I'm just very involved in my community and I've made a lot of friends met some really amazing people who have experienced the direct vision system. And because of the degree I was studying, it just has kind of the two just work really well together. And I just learn, I eat up resources. Um, I think it's really, I really, really empathize with people who are living in direct vision or just coming to Ireland. I, w I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, get to know people, get to know their stories and kind of try and help raise a bit of awareness about what I feel is a very unjust system. So yeah, that's kind of me. All things inclusivity, accessibility, and being kind to one another. That's fantastic, Maya. That's an incredible mission in life. To bring kindness to the world is we need more of that. <laughs> it's a hard <laughs> one, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> 
So Maya, the first thing um, I'd like to ask you is, what is direct provision? We hear a lot about it in the media, but I don't know if many people know what it actually is. Yeah, so direct provision um, was established about 20 years ago, and it was it is a system that um, provides bed and board, essentially, for um, people who are seeking asylum. And direct provision in Ireland is there is over 40 centres across the country. Seven of them are state owned and the rest are um, contracted out for a profit. So people are kind of contracted to run these places. Um, they are old hostels, disused B&Bs, old buildings, mostly that are kind of have been jazzed up a little bit but not very well um for people to live in while they're waiting to hear back about their 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 application um it's essentially um old hotel rooms you know you'd have you've probably been in a travel lodge at some point in your lives um it's about a room about that big where most of the time it's families in there and they will you know up to six seven eight people will be living in a room together or you could be in with complete strangers. It's not a particularly very nice system, but it was put in place to try and assess claims and create kind of an in-between point, but not kind of done particularly well. It was meant to be a temporary solution um, where people would only stay for six months. And that was in 2000. And uh, it's quite evident that it, we haven't really seen that happen. So. Yeah, that's kind of a very, very brief summary of of it. So Maya, you've said that direct provision is a place where people wait for their applications and claims to be assessed. What are they applying for? So um, they're applying for international protection um, for refugee status. So when people are coming into Ireland, they have to basically go through a couple of kind of uh, a process to become a refugee and when you get refugee status um is a big question because of the delay times in ireland you could be waiting up to 10 years um to hear back about anything but um there's a number of different kind of kind of branching out routes but essentially it's people applying to to become a refugee what is a refugee so a refugee is someone who is kind of there. They've had to leave their country of origin, and it's not. It's it's to do with a well-found fear of persecution, um, and that fear comes from things to do with race, religion, social group, which kind of um, where you know being a member of the LGBT community comes into. There's things like political opinion, and if you fear you know, you're, you have a fear of persecution because of anything to do with any of those reasons, you can um, seek asylum. My um, one thing that I always confused on is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. Can you tell us the difference between them? It comes in two parts. So seeking asylum comes first. Um, and that is an asylum seeker is someone who is in the process of getting their refugee status. So that's what direct vision was set up as kind of to support people in who are seeking asylum and 
essentially people wait there until they hear back about whether or not they are eligible for refugee status. And I'm putting it very simply there because in Ireland, it's, it's a, it's, it's quite a complicated process. And there are a lot of issues in that kind of pathway because you can apply for asylum. And if you get refused, you can appeal. And if you get refused again, I believe now I am by no means an expert on this. Um, so I could be wrong, but as far as I'm aware is that you can then apply for a subsidiary protection, which is, um, you don't get refugee status. You're under a protection. And it's if you don't quite fit under the criteria for a refugee, but there is still you can't be sent back to where you came from because there is there is risk of life. And you see, Ireland comes under a um, they have signed up to, you know, the United Nations Convention of the Refugee. So they are obliged to support people who are seeking asylum in Ireland. There are just a lot of issues and there is a lot of concerns. I have concerns about the interview process and the application process. The way the application, the interview process is supposed to work is people are meant to see whether the what is person is saying is plausible. But there are a lot of issues of where people have shown bias in the interview. The interviewer has shown bias um, mm. to kind of conceived perceptions and stereotypes of what they believe a person should be fleeing from. So a person in direct provision is an asylum seeker waiting to become a refugee. When a person gets the refugee status, what happens then? Do they stay living in direct provision or do they move on? So there's a lot of, you know, in Ireland, there is a lot of issues around housing and so in direct vision, there are people who have got their status as a refugee and they can't leave because they just don't have the supports that are needed to set up a life in Ireland. There's not that many supports, you know, you can't afford a lot of the time to move out of direct vision, especially if you have a family. And so in direct vision itself, it's, it's a mix of people who have status and people who don't. And it's something that we really have to look at in Ireland because, you know, they're giving people status, but then, then what then? Um, people need support to progress and move on. Mm. Um, so yeah. I see. Yeah. That really does sound like um, a huge issue. And what is the biggest problem around direct provision? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Where do or I start? Why is direct provision itself a problem? Well, quite simply, it violates human rights. Um, it is a complete violation of human rights. You know, we look at, you know, there's the right to privacy. There's the right to, you know, autonomy. You know, there's these things that, I, that you know, just aren't being provided. In direct vision itself, there's a complete lack of privacy because of overcrowding. You know, you're sharing a room with what could be strangers. Um, and to put it in one kind of aspect, you know, you could be, let's say you've sought asylum because you are a member of the LGBT community, but because of the nature of direct vision, you could be placed sharing a room with someone who comes from the culture that you have just tried to flee from. And there isn't a lot of kind of supports there for someone in that situation. It's kind of like, well, what do you want us to do about it? Um, 
Then there's, you know, there's a very limited access to culturally sensitive kind of mental health supports. So, you know, in Ireland, we have a lot of faith in science and stuff. Okay. Um, while, you know, different cultures have different ways of treating um, different kind of uh, mental health as well as physical health. Um, in most of them, you can't cook for your family. So that sounds something really simple, but, you know, for, mm. you know, a family kind of thing, it's quite an important part of day-to-day life, you know, cooking something for your child and developing kind of, you know, family relations, the parental bond, and it results in children becoming more dependent on the management of a center rather than their family. And that's just, that's just very few. Mm. There's very limited right to work. There's most of them are in quite isolated areas where there's limited access. They only get 38, 80 a week. And we know what public transport is like in this country. For me, it costs 30 odd euros to get to Cork and back. If I needed to, I was living in Dark Vision and I needed to access supports in Cork City, that would, ha- I would probably not go because I wouldn't be able to afford it. So it's just a multitude of, of really difficult, difficult place to live. Um, and as so many people are there for, you know, average is two years but i know people who have raised families in dark vision and have been living there for nearly 10 years so some children they don't know anything else that's, that's scary horrific yeah really scary maya i know direct vision was established in 2000 in ireland but what was it actually meant to do when it was first established it was meant to be a temporary measure to kind of while Ireland got to grips with people coming into the country seeking asylum, that they would, as a temporary measure, until they found something better. And the aim was to actually find something better that, you know, wasn't a complete violation of human rights and um, develop something that would actually help people integrate in a, a sensitive and empathic manner. But that evidently hasn't happened and I think it's just it wasn't you know I I hate to say it but Ireland has a history of institutionalization Uh, we saw it with the Magdalene laundries um, and it's Mm, not there's been issues around people with you know disabilities people with special needs and it it historically is in our in our history and i love ireland and i love living here but it was just a i think it's a lack of concern and so it's really i'm really hoping that you know in the next program for government they're saying they want to end our provision that's amazing but i really hope it happens because they've been ignoring recommendations for years um there was a recommendation it was um outlined in a report called the McMahon report and they basically um listed out everything that needed to change and very few of those recommendations were taken on board um you know there's people from dark vision have been included in you know governmental talks and stuff and when you hear people tell their stories it is scary and frightening um what's happening but nothing it doesn't really feel like anything was taken on board so i'm really really hoping there has been some progress mm. i'm hoping we actually see actual proper progress actual kind of 
change? Well, from what I've heard from you so far in this podcast, I certainly hope there will be some change as well. So, so do I, Mark. Fingers crossed. I really hope so. Maya, you've spoken about the history of institutionalisation in Ireland and the fact that we have a lack of concern around many, many, like the Magdalene laundries, what has happened to many people who've had special needs. Can you ask, do you think it's just a lack of concern or do you think it could oftentimes be that many people don't actually know these things are happening? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's that people don't know they're happening. Like I know people in my local area who didn't even know that we had a direct provision centre in our local area. Um, it, yeah, there was just like, mm, I didn't okay. know about it until I was 16 and... I suppose in a sense, it's not really talked about in schools and, you know, we aren't really, it's not really something that I was aware of as much. Um, and I should have been, I, I just don't know. I, it, it, people have been protesting about direct provision. Like some of my lecturers in UCC have been involved and active for years. And I think it's sometimes that maybe it's always been visible. I just wasn't listening. Um, and I wasn't truly listening okay. to, um, kind of aware. I think we all have a certain amount of awareness. And because I feel like when you meet someone and you kind of talk to them face to face and you hear their story and their experiences, it kind of really encourages empathy. And I found it wasn't even something I was, I thought it was far yes. away from us. We don't have that in Ireland. We don't do that in Ireland. And then I met someone in Ireland and yeah. spoke to them and I was like, oh my God, it does. And it was actually through an event with the NYCI during their One World Week. And it was in 2015 when they covered the topic of migration um, at the height of kind of, um, you know, we're experiencing a lot uh, during the, you know, the issues with kind of the ref so-called refugee crisis, you know. So, yeah, it's, I, I, I don't know. Um, I feel like now people who are 16 do know, though, so hopefully. And from what you've said, Maya, it does remind me a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests and the fact that it is about bringing awareness. Fanula on the podcast now two weeks ago, um, she really made that point and made me see that a lot of the problems and a lot of things that I had thought were not Irish issues truly are. So again, mm. it is about having that personal connection and that personal conversation to have empathy towards others. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I feel like now, I feel like I don't know what it is, but I feel like during the current situation with COVID-19 and the kind of, I feel like, I don't know what it is, but I feel there's solidarity. Um, but I also feel like it brought a lot of things to light. Um, you know, like with direct vision, we're talking about overcrowding areas and stuff. Um, a lot of communal areas that it was an evident hotspot for the virus from the very, very beginning, but it wasn't really addressed. Now that, you know, we've seen yeah. the issues in, you know, the Skellig Star in Kerry, which I'm sure you've heard about the Dark Vision Centre. The issues surrounding that have really brought so, uh, Dark Vision. Maya, will you tell us more about this? So I've heard very conflicted stuff in the media, so I'm not really sure if I'm up to date enough. 
Of course. Would you be able to give us even an overview? Because I haven't heard about okay. this, what has happened in the in the Skellig Star. And I think many listeners may not either. Yeah. So if you could just give us even um, a short. Okay. So it's a dart provision centre that was very, very recently set up. And um, my understanding is that there were people who... Um, had undergone testing in other direct vision centers were then brought sharing buses and, you know, in, you know, a bus from Dublin down to Kerry. And there was a lot of that. There was a, the, a virus outbreak like there. A good idea. Yeah. And the government said that they were not aware of that. There had been tested that there had someone had been tested but I believe that they had, there are reports that they had been made aware and that many people felt that it was just trying to get it up and running as soon as possible. And then it meant that there was conflicted reports um, where the people in the center were saying that they weren't allowed to leave. The mm. government was saying, oh no, they are allowed to leave. That's a lie. And so there's a lot of conflicting kind of stuff. Um, and from the kind of reports from people in there, it sounds it sounds awful. I believe a seven year old child was tested down there. Um, um, I think she was asymptomatic. I'm not too sure, but it sounds really scary. And I can't imagine if I how I would feel being in that situation where you don't you can't self isolate, you can't distance yourself. Yes, you have mm. no way of protecting yourself and no way of protecting your family members. Okay. And it must be being in that small kind of old hotel must be really, really, really scary. Yeah, that, that sounds properly horrific. Correct provision was only meant to be here for six months, but it's been 20 years later and it's still with us. Why was it extended? Mm. I'm not sure if it was, I believe people were meant to stay there for six months um yeah. minimum like maximum um before they got their s some sort of you know communication on their status um i'm not sure mm -hmm. how long the system they intended the system to be i just know it was temporary um but yes the reason it's extended yeah. i have no idea it really shouldn't have been mm -hmm. i guess it wasn't a priority and i think what happened was is we got overwhelmed with applications um, that there wasn't a, you know, a properly functioning system set up to, you know, deal. Now, I'm speaking as someone who doesn't work in the area. I don't know. I imagine it's quite a difficult area to work in. But from an outside perspective, and they've seen it happen in a lot of countries that they don't, they set up the, the, the system. Direct vision was set up, but they didn't put in, you know, enough, I want to say thought. Um, or effort into setting up a, a system that would, you know, get through applications quickly, that would, you know, have yes. good communication where people yes. are actually trained properly and effectively to interview people. Mm. I think it was put on the back burner. Um, sure, look, it's working. People are coming in. People are staying. Yeah. You know, it's there. You know, it's functioning. It's it's pretty awful, but like no one's really complaining about it that much. So 
let's focus on other things. That's how I perceive it. So, so because there was no public outcry, the government just said it is working as it's meant to, even if it is, as you've said, against human rights. Thus, we're going to leave it in place. Is that kind of the way you see it? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't like there was people protesting and people have been saying it's wrong for years, but they weren't getting it wasn't, you know, nationwide outcry. Um, and we've seen mm. that happen in the last couple of weeks, uh, months. And, you know, since I first got involved, it's I've seen that people are getting more engaged and want to try and do something about it. Um, which is encouraging. I just want to see it happen a bit faster. Um, cause people, you know, they're, they're being born and they're dying in direct vision. And I feel really mm. uncomfortable with that because people have come to Ireland to seek refuge as in, as is their right. And it is our responsibility as people, as humans to look after our fellow humans and, you know, people living in dark provision, they are members of our community. They are human beings and we should be banding together and sticking together and helping each other. Um, I, I hate this otherness that happens, this, this fear of, of new cultures and new, different religions and, in my own, in my, I feel that for a community or a country to truly survive, they have to adapt and grow and embrace new thoughts, new ideas, um, different cultures and learn from each other and develop together rather than leaving people behind because it's not, it's not something people feel comfortable with. It really is clear that the direct vision is just not suitable and it's just not working. But my, if direct vision worked as it was meant to work, would it be fit for purpose? Not really. I don't feel like putting people in that kind of environment with very limited access to freedom is productive or beneficial to anybody i i don't i don't really as it is it doesn't sit right with me um what was implemented from the very beginning i, I mean it definitely seems like uh, these people are coming to ireland for a refuge and a place to start almost a new life and they're not really getting it here mm. which is disappointing yeah. yeah if in the morning and the government plan goes ahead and direct provision is abolished what would you like to see take its place? So I don't know exactly what I would see. I am a student. I don't really know exactly what is the best answer. If I did, I wouldn't be sitting here down in West Cork. I would be up doing something about it. <laughs> um, and people ask me this question a lot. And then... They seem kind of confused when I don't have a specific design, elaborate design of like the building and like all this kind of stuff mm. and the structures and policies. I'm, 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 I'm 21 and very limited knowledge of how these things work and how to do them. But I do know kind of characteristics that I would like to see. Um, okay, and what are they? 
I believe that people should have the right to privacy, um, you know, a private, a private life, um, where they can, you know, a family can live as a family. I think that in relation to that, there should be stronger kind of, they should uphold the rights of a child. Um, now Massey, um, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland have very simple points of what needs to be done. But I believe that people should, you know, feel empowered and included and safe um, in the in whatever takes direct vision's place. That it doesn't, you know, violate people's, you know, dignity or, you know, the their freedom or impact on make them feel unsafe because that is the reason that people are coming to Ireland is to feel safe. Um, they yeah. people want their you know to to raise their family for their children not to 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 fear for their lives to have an education. At the moment, there is mm. very limited access to the education system, and you know. Even when you get refugee status, you aren't eligible for the SUSE grant and you still have to pay international fees. And I don't think that's empowering. Mm -hmm. And I that's, feel whatever system is in place no, needs to be empowering. Yeah. Mm. I think what you've said there, safe, that's the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, um, people are coming here to feel safe. And it is within their right to do so. And I hate this term of illegal immigrants or aliens, um, because that's not, that's not correct. It's so false and it is wrong because it is, it is a person's fundamental right to seek asylum. And it's mm. not, it's not up to me to dictate whether or not I believe they feel that they should feel safe in their country or whether, you know, um, I don't believe someone should seek asylum because of this reason. That's not, that's not up to me. I, I really don't think, um, people would just seek asylum for fun because it's awful. Mm. And we forget that people who are seeking asylum, you know, they, they, they would have had lives, you know, and, and a lot of people would love to return to the country they came from if it was safe for them to do so but it's not the the friends mm. that i've made through kind of this this area are some of the warmest most compassionate and welcoming people that i've ever met made me feel so at home and just so kind and oh just such a beautiful beautiful people i've met and really 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 intelligent and aware you make a very good point uh, you make some very, very good points. You have spoken about how you would like to see people in direct vision being, let's say, brought into the smaller towns in Ireland where there have been, let's say, there's been a lot of outward migration to, let's say, bigger cities and towns and things like this. But then we also hear of stories where when people and direct vision centres are to be created in smaller towns, that there's been a huge backlash by the local people by the local communities mm. um i can think of one particular story where a hotel where uh, a direct frisian was meant to be created was burnt down 
So why is there this big um, backlash to draft provision centres being placed in smaller towns in Ireland? So there's a number of different reasons that I I hear. Um, there's one which is people don't want um, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees coming to their community. It's a fear of the unknown. Then there is the argument that I know some people, they don't want direct provision centers in their area because it is direct provision is awful. And they're protesting the, the system and not the fact that people mm. are coming to the community. And then there's, there's all these kind of in between ones where there's, you know, we don't have the resources to provide. There was no consultation with the community. I think mm. a solution to that is there should be those resources in a lot of communities anyway. If the government is setting up a center somewhere, the community, that's an opportunity. I feel for the community to develop and I feel that the government should support that. Um, so if there should be, you know, enough doctors, enough healthcare staff, but I do feel that having you know more people move into communities is of benefit to both sides of the community um it is an opportunity for development for growth for progression and i know myself and a lot of my community would feel the same that we would we would love to have we would love to have new people coming down and moving in here at the moment it's quite we have an issue where we rely quite heavily on tourism to a certain extent. So a lot of the houses in my local area are only lived in part of the year. And I would love myself to have, mm. to have people. Now there is the question of, do we have the resources? This is quite naive, but I think create the resources. Um, there's a gap there. There's an opportunity for jobs there. So my brought up um, about the lack of communication with local communities. Is this a problem? Do we need more communication with local communities when direct provision centres are being created? Um, that's a difficult one because it's kind of, I personally feel that um, for myself, um, it is in within people's rights to seek refuge and it is our responsibility as people who are living in a fairly developed country with resources, in my opinion, to spare, that people are fleeing from war, from persecution, from really, really traumatic and awful experiences that we are a global community. Let's look out for each other. Um, I think that I would love for communities to respond with, okay, this is going to be tough, but let's help. Um, I do think there needs to be more communication between the government and, you know, communities um, in terms of ensuring that the supports that are needed will be there. I'd like to see, I obviously I don't agree with the direct vision itself, um, which kind of makes it difficult to answer this question, if that makes sense. But yes. for any group of people who are moving into a community, 
I would love for there to be support um, from both sides, um, from the government and from the, the local people. Um, I understand it's hard but, because there is that fear of the unknown. And so, so Maya, I just want to point out two things here. So firstly, you said that you believe that we have resources to spare. Yeah. Yet there could be an argument put forth that we don't have resources to spare because we still have a huge homeless crisis. Shouldn't we, we look after our own citizens first and then no. look after the committed country? This is, no. this is an argument that <laughs> will is. be put to you. Okay. Everyone puts this argument to me and I'm, it's not, ever, there's no, there's no benefit to being like, to saying, oh, well, this thing's more important, so we won't deal with it, or, you know, let's look after our own, because I, I don't understand why we can't support both. Now, um, something I haven't mentioned is I um, work with St. Vincent de Paul as well, and work with, okay. with the homeless you community. You do, what do you do with St. Vincent de Paul? Um, so I am a, well, I was, up until this year, I was their public relations officer for the UCC Society, and a lot of our work revolves oh, around um, educating students, but also working with communities, um, local areas, the, so the Cork City area. Um, so we would be, we'd do Christmas food drives. We would organize fundraisers for supports for the local community. I believe you can do both. Yeah. I believe you can, if you fully commit to it, you can support all members of the community. And... I think making arguing that to to choose one over the other is counterproductive because people can can do both. I know it's hard to you know some people you might not have the time but having even the support there the welcoming kind of attitude is something in itself um and sticking up for each other. You know, we're all I feel we're all humans. We mm -hmm. all have different struggles. Um, I don't think it's fair to discredit one for the sake of another, because in my opinion, every struggle is valid. Mm, that's a very, very good point. Every struggle is valid. We should almost <laughs> put that on a t-shirt yeah. somewhere. Maya, when direct provision is often discussed, and let's say people moving into Ireland from abroad through, let's say, the asylum seeker and refugee system, there is often a thought around what multiculturalism will do to, let's say, local communities. Um, because there are some who believe that when a new group of people are entering an established culture, that they should integrate into the culture. Whereas there's other people then that think the established culture should change to accommodate new people coming into it. What would you think? What side would you stand on that argument? I'm going to be a complete brat and say that I think both. Um, from my experience, in my opinion, the best parts of Irish culture is the welcoming feeling that a lot of small communities have. We have experienced a significant amount of oppression in our past, and I don't know whether we actually realize it, but it has created quite an empathic culture. I believe as well, we have a really strong sense of loyalty to our communities and that we really want to make sure that everyone is looked after and done right by. And I th actually believe that we hold 
a lot of similarities in those values to a lot of the cultures and to a lot of the people who are coming into Ireland seeking refuge. Um, mm. I, um, I work, we do these, these, these parties during Easter and Christmas and there's this, just this community feeling where, um, people I've never met before are coming up to me and giving me a hug and making sure I'm eating enough food and making sure I'm doing okay. Their kids are coming up and they're just making me dance with them. That's and there's this really welcoming and like safe feeling. And there's, 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 you know, born and bred Irish people. There's, you know, there's people who have only just entered the country. And then, of course, you can't forget there's, there's children who are Irish born in Ireland, speak better Irish, dance better than me, play better trad, know the folklore, the myths and legends better than I do, schooling <laughs> me. A number of them have like told me, they're like, uh-uh, you are wrong. That is not what Ku Cullen did. <laughs> A lot of people have embraced it so much. And the kids I work with, they love learning Irish. They want to be teachers. They, they, they're like, I'm working on my Irish and I'm going to teach people. And I see that that and I'm like wow you know people are putting in such an effort to look at our culture and to learn about it and embrace it and I think we could do a little bit of embracing ourselves I feel that we actually hold a lot of very similar values and that we can learn a lot from each other um, a lot about community and empathy and kind of solidarity and while there are some aspects mm. that you know we might clash a little bit on and um, that are different that are new sometimes they can really benefit us to look at those and if you think about it look at way ireland is at the moment we've accepted a lot of you know um ways things that are done in the u.s things that you know there's a lot of, you know, Southeast Asia. There's a lot of influences in our culture. There's there's a lot of actually influences of African culture as well. There's all over the world. In Ireland, mm. we we already are quite, there's traditions we have, and I love those. I love a good trad session. But what's a little bit more going to hurt? Um, I feel that we can learn a lot. And being a part of getting to know, you know, different communities and different cultures, I've realized that we really are more similar than we think we are. Um, different religions and history can be scary, but if you give people a chance, we're really much more similar than we think we are. That's a, a very nice sentiment. Maya, is clear that the direct provision system is not fit for purpose, but what strides have you made to reform the system in the last 20 years? So I think a lot of, there's, there hasn't been much. Um, last year, was it last year or the year before, they raised the money that, or the allowance that people received to 38.80 from about 28 euros. Um, hopefully that will be raised again. They introduced the right to work. Um, 
very limited, but it's something, I guess. Um, a lot of people can't access that because of the mm -hmm. criteria. But I think the most tangible improvements that, you know, seem almost possible have kind of occurred in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, the program for government includes the ending of direct provision. And then there's, you know, there's talks about reducing the time that people spend, um, speeding up the application process, making sure, you know, people receive some sort of communication about it within, you know, hopefully less than 10 years. Um, I, I think it's aiming for maybe six months, um, which is what it should be, at least or less. And then something so, um, you know, you were speaking to Fanula last week. Well, Fanula was part of this mm -hmm. organization of this really beautiful and powerful event that was organized by um, a group of young people and their mentors talking about racism in the community through kind of um, a lot mm. of people who work with the Court Migrant Center. And at this event, um, the Ombudsman for Children was there and he was really receptive and he really seemed to listen um, to what the young people were saying and has um, said that he's going to work on introducing um, um, a, a kind of a procedure so his office can actually, children can complain about racism to him and that it'll actually be looked at. Whereas before there wasn't really that. And he was saying, you know, reflecting on it, he was there like, the fact that we don't receive any, like mm. many complaints at all, doesn't actually reflect, it, it just reflects that maybe they need to change and they need to improve the processes that they have and make yeah. it more accessible and available mm. to people. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I really hope that that's these things news. happen, um, especially for children, um, because uh, we young they we need to support um, children so much. So we need to support everyone. But mm. growing up, experiencing like these kids were telling some of the most heartbreaking stories and so eloquently and it was quite a lot to take in hard to hear a lot of their stories um really really hard to hear but mm. um need to be heard and need to be kind of reflected upon yes so i'm hoping change will come Definitely. it is horrible that in 20 years there really hasn't been much change yeah yeah but there seems cause for hope now. Yes, there most certainly is. Yeah, I'm. I'm always hopeful. One thing that strikes me that working like the the friends that I've made and stuff, you'd think, you know, living in such a difficult in difficult circumstances, um, mm. you know, it's hard to be positive. But working with the 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 people that I have, they're so resilient and so strong um, and have taught me a lot of lessons about, you know, just life and like the way we go about doing things and mm. a lot about positivity. And I, I just think we can learn a lot, a lot about, you know, just, just about the way we go about life. Um, I always feel yes. happier almost after the court migrant center 
it is mm. it was like the highlight of my week when I was in Cork it's just some there's some really strong positivity there on that hopeful note thank you very much Maya thank you thank you for um for for asking me to talk a little bit about it um I know I ramble thank you for bearing with me <laughs> you're more than welcome it's an incredibly important topic that I think we do need to have more conversation around now everyone as this the happiness chair as we're coming to our end we shall finish as we always do with our happy section so firstly we speak about the happy things that have happened to us in the last week would anyone like to begin our ginger beer is ready and very delicious um my mum's really into like making ginger beer and elderflower champagne. So this week we didn't just have ginger beer. Oh, lovely. We had elderflower champagne as well. Um, it was my parents' anniversary. So that was pretty good. Oh, lovely. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> pretty good. That's a very good good way to spend your week. Mark? Um, I guess for me, I don't really have a happy story per se this week, but I guess I've been... Um, enjoying a bit of quiet time before I go back to work next week. Um, so I guess I'm enjoying that, which is a good a good thing. Yes, that is. Uh, enjoy your final bit of quiet <laughs> before the madness yes. of work begins once more. <laughs> For myself, my happy thing is along the same lines as Maya. I've also made elderflower champagne. Um, I made 20 litres this week. So I was very happy with that. We'll end on a happy story from around the world. So, Maya, I believe you have a happy story for us this week. Yeah, so Ireland got a place on the Security Council. Woo! Very happy. Oh, I think it's cool. Um, Fantastic <laughs> I think that's kind of neat. Yeah, go Ireland. Look at us go. So we are now one of the... We're one of the rotating members, I think is the way to describe it, on the Security Council for the next two years. So this is a... A fantastic achievement for a country as small as ours. So we beat up Canada and one other country, which is a fantastic achievement. Yes, it definitely mm. is. So everyone, on that very happy and hopeful note, we shall end. Thank you very much for your time today. It was wonderful on a blusty, blustery and wet evening that <laughs> it is outside here. Everyone, thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. YMCA Services will continue to be available to you throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, including the new online information chat service. If you were looking for information about anything or just want to have a chat with someone, YMCA Youth Information staff are available to talk it through and get you an answer. Youth Information Helpline is available from 2pm to 4pm Monday to Saturday at 023 that's 023-88-44009. Online youth information chat is available from 4pm to 8pm Monday to Friday at ymca-ireland.net forward slash question. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at yiyoungvoices. Please follow the official guidelines to stay safe and you'll find lots of advice and tips on how you can look after your mental well-being, stay active and stay connected at gov.ie forward slash together. This is a very difficult time for us all. Thank you for listening to the Happiness Jar podcast. Look after yourselves and stay safe. <laughs>